some of you may be coming from different church backgrounds and you're like, that's not what we were taught. That's not what we thought. But I really want to encourage you to read the Bible because the Bible says you can know your sins are forgiven. You can know, thank you, Benjamin. You, John, you, you want your iPad here? You can know you have eternal life. You can know Jesus died and rose again. You don't have to do penance or purgatory. It's full, it's finished, it's free. Jesus offers it, thanks again, as a gift of his grace, and you receive it by faith. So if you have questions about that, we're here to talk to you about that. If you have your Bible this morning, please turn to the Gospel of John in chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible, I want to invite you to just let us know. Our ushers are passing out Bibles. We want you to keep this Bible. It's funny, I have a friend I've prayed for for 20 years. It's an older man, a neighbor of mine, and he called me a couple weeks ago. He said, Tom, can you help me get a Bible? And I was like, yeah, as a matter of fact, you can come to church and we'll give you one. And he came last week and he heard Pastor John Samara talk about how God is working so powerfully in Syria and how people are willing to die just to get a copy of the scriptures. And I, I gave my friend Paul that Bible and, and urged him that he would read it in hopes that he too would find the gift of eternal life through Christ. So if you're not used to reading the Bible, there are a lot of people who think, you know, the Bible's kind of dry. But then all of a sudden they'll hear a friend say, wow, the Bible became alive to me. Now I understand it. But I want you to understand that what's really happening is the Bible's always alive. The Bible's alive and powerful. And Jesus is always alive. But what happens is not that they become alive to us. We become alive. The Bible teaches that without Christ, without true faith, we're dead in our sins. But when God makes us alive, then the Bible becomes something we understand and Christ becomes very real to us. And so it's really cool because even though we don't see Jesus, it's as though we can talk and walk with him and have a relationship with him. And that's really important. And one of the things that Jesus left us is his word so that we can grow in our relationship with him and our faith and our understanding of him. And so we're going through the gospel of John. And if you've never read John, I want to encourage you to read it. And I've really urged many of you to start teaching others through the gospel of John. Take the things that you're learning and, and, and ingesting them into yourselves and share them with your children and others. But John 13 through 17 in the history of the church has been profoundly helpful to Christians. It's called the Upper Room Discourse. It all took place in a couple hours one night, just a few hours before Jesus was going to be arrested and die at 9 o'clock in the morning. So this is the end of his ministry of three and a half years with his disciples, and suddenly Jesus takes them up for the Passover, and he says, guys, things are going to change around here. And we've all had a things are going to change meeting, right? Remember back when your parents said, all right, we're, we're having a things are going to change meeting, and you're like, no more leaving the dishes out, no more neglecting the laundry, no more, and then, you know, that lasted hopefully for a while, and then the, the scarier one is when you have a things are going to change around here meeting at work, right? We now have a new boss, and things are going to change around here, and suddenly we have new responsibilities, or we find out things are going to be very different. So Jesus, you could call the upper room discourse a things are going to change around here, but it was very calculated and carefully planned. It wasn't like Jesus was in a hurry or he suddenly had a new idea. He basically was saying to these guys, I've got some profound things to teach you. I couldn't tell you this before. I have to tell you right now. So I want to rehearse them, but I want to invite you to do something. I want you all, I really want you to do this. I, I, I've been reading the, the Upper Room Discourse over and over again. 
keep reading it. Every day, climb those stairs into the upper room and read it again and ask the Lord to help you to, to really get there and listen to what he's saying. Six or seven things I want you to look for as you're reading. Number one, as you're reading through 13 to 17, Jesus is going to say, now my hour has come for me to die. And God's going to be glorified. So pay attention to that. Throughout his life, Jesus kept saying, my hour hasn't come, my hour hasn't come, my hour hasn't come. Takes him upstairs, he goes, things are going to change because now my hour has come and God is going to be glorified in a profound way. As you're reading through that, notice how many times Jesus mentions God being glorified and him being glorified. Secondly, notice that Jesus is going to more deeply describe his relationship with God. These guys don't get it. They're like, Jesus is a cool dude. No, he's the Messiah. But Jesus is going to go, you, don't, you, you need to know just how one and mutually indwelling me and my Father are. So pay attention to that. He keeps saying, I'm in the Father, Father in me. Third thing to look for, when you're reading it, notice how he's immediately preparing for his death. He kind of does it subtly. He goes, I'm leaving and you can't come. I'm leaving and you can't come. I'm leaving and you can't come, but I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm coming. And they're like, what are you talking about? And he goes, I didn't want to tell you this before, but I'm telling you now because in just a little while, something horribly and, and immediate is going to happen. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be crucified. And I don't want you to fall away on account of this. You're going to run away like scared rabbits, but you're going to look back and you'll say, but wait, he told us this was going to happen. So note the, the urgency. And then notice when you're up there in the upper room and you're reading how often he's preparing them for their new mission. He's like, things are going to change around here because, guys, I'm not going to be here anymore. I'm going back to my father's house. So I got a job for you. You're going to be my witnesses. Now, they didn't know what that meant because they were going to bear witness to something that hadn't even happened yet. He just says, you're going to be my witnesses. And I'm going to send you, and you're going to go out into a hostile world. And you're going to tell them what happened to me, even though they're not understanding this. But don't worry, because the other thing he says, on five different occasions in the upper room, he talks about sending them the Holy Spirit. And pay attention to them. See if you can find, as he's talking in these chapters, 13, 14, 15, 16, he'll say a few things, and then he'll say, and when the Spirit comes, he's going to do this. He's going to help you. He's going to be with you. He's going to teach you. He's going to remind you. He's going to convict the world of sin. So that's a big deal. He's saying things are really going to change around here because the Spirit's going to come. And they're like, huh? And then also notice there's going to be an emphasis on how they need to continue their relationship with him because he's not going to be able to see them anymore. And they're not going to, or excuse me, they're not going to be able to see him anymore. He can't hold their hand anymore and, and pray, now I lay me down to sleep each night and and eat meals with them. He's like, I'm out of here. So he uses this phrase. He goes, you need to abide in me. You need to trust me and learn how to obey me all the time. Because as you do that, you're going to know me better and you're going to bear fruit. Things are going to happen through you that are going to profoundly affect others. And then finally, at the end, he prays for them. He's like, Father, it's going to be a big deal when I leave. So I pray for their unity. I pray for you to protect them from the devil. I pray for their holiness. And I pray, God, that they will have a future together of oneness and that one day they'll come be with me. So get up there in the upper room and be reading that. But today we're in chapter 14, and we're going to start in verse 7. And we're only going to make it down to verse 17 because we're going a little bit shorter today because of communion, which was an an excellent opportunity for us to reflect on the death of Christ. So let's pray. Lord, open our eyes 
as we continue to learn what, what you're teaching us. May the Spirit work even now in Jesus' name, amen. Now, Jesus has already washed their feet. He already told them, I'm leaving and you can't come. Don't be too upset because I'm going to my father's house and I'm going to come again. And they're like, How, where are you going? He goes, I'm going to my father's house. And they go, show us the way. And remember, we left off last week in verse 6. This is a great verse. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God but through me. It's really important because we need to understand that. Christianity is exclusive. But it's not because we're a bunch of arrogant people. It's because Jesus is God. And he said, I came down from heaven and I died so that you could come to heaven. And if you don't want to come my way, you're not going to come at all. So it's not that we're like, oh, we're better than Muslims or we're better than Jews or we're better than... We're not better. We're beggars who believe what Jesus said. But what Jesus is going to begin to talk about in verses 7 down through verse 11 is his unique relationship with God. They still don't understand. Like, you tell us about your father up there, who, our father who are in heaven. How are you and him related? So Thomas goes, could I see your dad just once? Could you show us your father? And Jesus is like, no, but I'm going to tell you two things about him. Number one, if you've seen me, you've seen him. So I'm here to disclose my father. And then secondly, he's going to say, and he and I, we mutually indwell one another. So we're distinct, but we're one. All right, so let's look. Verse 7. Jesus says, if you had known me, you would have known my father also, and from now on you know him, and, and you've seen him. And they're all going, we did? I don't remember seeing him. Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Now, Philip's not the first guy in the Bible to ask to see God. Remember Moses said that. He said, Lord, show me your glory. The problem is, to ask to see God in his fullness would be like a mosquito asking to touch the purple light. You can't do that. You're going to fry. So God said to Moses, I can't let you see me. You'll be consumed. So the Bible says this. No one has ever seen God at any time, but Jesus came and revealed him. So, so look what Jesus says here. Verse 9. Jesus says to him, Philip, have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So why do you, why do you, why do you say show us the Father? You've seen me, so, so you've seen the Father. Now, let me explain why that's important, because a lot of people have this view of God, and it's distorted. Either he's like a great-grandfather in the sky, like children, more candy. So people say, my God's a God of love. He would never hurt anybody. He would never put anyone in hell. And I'm going, you better read the Bible. Because that's not at all what, God's not just a great, he is love, but he's also holy. But other people have this vision of God that he's this scary, mean guy in the sky with lightning bolts just looking for somebody to make his day. So I actually had someone say this to me one time. He goes, when I read about God in the Old Testament killing people and Ten Commandments and fire and thunder, he goes, he scares me. But when I read about Jesus, I like him because he seems really merciful and compassion but I don't like God. Ding, ding. If you think of God as some scary guy up there like who hates you and wants to hurt you, read the Gospels and look at Jesus. You've seen me, Jesus says. This is what God's like, full of mercy, full of compassion. I'm not up here to kick you to the curb. Jesus says anyone who comes to me, he's full of compassion. He hates sin, 
But you, you see in Jesus the manifestation of God. And so the New Testament apostles are big on this. Jesus is the image of God, Colossians 1. Hebrews chapter 1. He's the exact representation of God. So that's the first thing Jesus says is, I've shown you what God's like. Secondly, though, he, he wants to describe this mutual indwelling. Now, this is kind of weird terminology. Maybe you've never thought about this before. Look at verse 11. He says, believe me. Or, I'm sorry, verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Wait, what? Yeah, I'm in him, he's in me. So this phrase is, is used frequently in the Gospel of John. It's not the first time Jesus says this. He said it a number of times. In verse chapter 10, he says, I want you to know and understand the Father's in me and I'm in the Father. Later on, when he prays for them in chapter 17, he goes, just as you, Father, are in me and I'm in you. So what does he mean by that? Donald Carson in his commentary said this, for Jesus to use this term of mutual indwelling is a linguistic way of describing his complete unity with his Father. In other words, this is, this is profound. Jesus once said this, I and my Father are one. Huh? So what we want to see here is that Jesus is fully God, equal to the Father. He's eternal. And there's this oneness. But this does not obliterate all distinction. Jesus is not the Father. God is not one guy who changes outfits. Like, I think I'll be the dove today. Today I'll put on my Jesus outfit. Today I'll be the Father. The Bible teaches there's one God who exists in three eternal equal persons. Distinct. Unique, but one. And we're like, okay, now that we got the simple stuff out of the way, let's move on to something difficult. Here's the thing. The Trinity is, is deeply mysterious. That's why I laugh when people go, Christianity is just made up by men. Who would make up the Trinity? Like, as a Christian, someone once said, if you try to fully understand the Trinity, you'd lose your mind. But deny it, you lose your soul. Because the Bible's clear that you must believe that Jesus is God, that he's Lord, that he's not just some guy who died for us. And this is what makes us distinct from, say, Judaism. They don't believe Christ is God. From the Jehovah's Witnesses. Don't let Jehovah's Witnesses fool you. They'll tell you, oh, Jesus died for you. They do not believe Jesus is God. They believe that God created Jesus, that Jesus is lesser than the Father. So, so Jesus is going, look, guys, my Father and I mutually indwell one another. Now, later he's going to pray, Father, I want to be in them and them in me so they can feel that same oneness that you and I have. Because here's the thing. Jesus and God really like each other. Like, and the Spirit. Those guys, and pardon me for this, I'm not being crass, they get along perfectly and they are fulfilled within themselves. They weren't lonely one day going, gee, three's not a crowd. Let's make some little friends to play with. God is in and of himself awesome and complete and perfect. He doesn't need us. But for him to reveal himself to us and say, you don't need to think about, oh, I'd like to think of God like this. Here's who I am, one God in three persons. And I sent my son, and Jesus says, I want you to believe me that I have come from God. So he says to them in verse 11, believe me that I'm in the Father, and the Father is in me. 
Now, he wants us to believe because he said it, and that's enough. Last week when my friend Paul was here, you know what he said to me? He goes, I want to believe this stuff, Tom, but he goes, how do I know the Bible's not a myth? And number two, I've never seen Jesus. How am I going to believe in him? Remember what Jesus said to Thomas later in that book? When he showed up to Thomas after he was risen, he said, go ahead and touch me. And Thomas goes, now I believe Jesus, you're my Lord and my God. And Jesus says, Thomas, you believe because you see me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Somebody once said, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Let me just take one line out of there. God said it, and whether you or I believe it or not, that settles it. (laughs) But the benefit will come to your soul if you believe it. So Jesus says, believe me that I have this relationship. And if you're struggling just to believe my words, believe on account of the works that I've done. I've raised the dead. I've healed the blind. So if you think I'm just some goofy guy that you don't have to listen to, think about what I've done and believe and start following me. And I, and I urge our young people as you grow up and you're going, do I really believe this stuff where mom and dad just dumping it on me? Believe Jesus because he is who he said he is. And he will profoundly come and, and, and you will know him. Whether you're 10 or whether you're 90, you'll have a personal relationship with him. So Jesus, he says, guys, things are going to change around here in that I want you to know a little more about my relationship with Father. But now, he says, now let me tell you about my relationship with you. Here's how things are going to change with you. And this is where we perk up because he's talking not just to them, but to us. This is a great verse. Verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do. Can you imagine when he said that, the look on their faces? I mean, they've been with him for three and a half years. They've watched this guy from morning till till sunset, healing people, raising the dead, feeding 5,000, skipping across the water. And then he goes, all that stuff that I did, you're going to do that stuff, and you're going to do greater than that. You mean I could just go to funerals and go, come, come out of the grave. Hallelujah. I could raise the dead. I think there's been a lot of misunderstanding about this verse. Partly because we stop right there. Don't stop reading. He says, guys, I'm leaving, but here's what's going to change. You're going to do greater works than these. Well, why? He says, Because I go to the Father. Yeah? What's that have to do with it? We'll keep reading. And whatever you ask in my name, that will I do. So the reason that profoundly Christians can do greater things than even Jesus did on earth is because now Christ having accomplished all that he did on the cross and returned to God and having poured out the Spirit has opened up for us the window of prayer that is very different from the way things were in the Old Testament. 
He says, because I'm going to go and I'm going to be seated at the right hand of God as Lord over the church, and I'm going to pour out the Spirit of God in a new and profound way, and He will indwell every single one of you, and every Christian on planet Earth will have now direct access to God. You don't have to come through a priest. You don't have to come through another sacrifice. Wherever you are, whenever you want, you can come directly to the Father, and you can bring your requests and I will grant them. I'm going to do powerful things. Look what he says. Now, don't miss this. Because he says, this is why the church will do greater than what I did on earth. Because I'm going to go to the Father, and whatever you ask in my name, I'm going to do that so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So first of all, I want to talk about what does he mean by asking things in his name? Well, many of you know, you've, you've been around Christians long enough to know, they always say this phrase at the end, in Jesus' name, amen. You know, thank you, God, for this food, everything you've done. You grew up, some of you grew up in a pastor's home for your bountiful blessings. In Jesus' name, amen. In fact, we've heard it so often that many of us, when we don't hear that, we're like, wait, you know, hey, God, thanks for this day. Amen. You didn't say it. What? the magic phrase, the key, you got to say in Jesus' name, it's better than abracadabra. And if you don't say it, you don't get it. That is so far from what he meant. It's not like there's something magical by saying, oh, by the way, in Jesus' name. It's an understanding of this new relationship I have with God because he shed his blood and he paid for my sin and he went back to the Father's right hand. He now says, you can come through me. I'm your mediator. You're like, well, can I come talk to God? He goes, tell him I sent you. Drop my name there, and he'll bring you right in. And so we as, as believers in this age, we have this profound privilege of prayer, access to God. We just read when Benjamin put those words up there. We now come through the veil of Jesus' flesh immediately into the presence of God, and we begin to pray, and we ask for things. And you're like, hallelujah, a blank check? I can ask for whatever I want? But notice what he says. The reason that we're going to ask for things, verse 13, is so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Don't miss that. He's not saying, you want a new Mercedes? Just ask. He's saying, ask for things that will bring God glory through Jesus. And that sort of helps me to frame the things that I ask for, right? Because you're like, that don't work. I've tried that. I don't get everything I want. I don't get everything I ask for. Well, the gospel teaches this as well, that the father delights to give good things to his children. But James says this in James chapter 4, sometimes when you ask, you will not receive it because you ask with selfish motives to spend it on your own pleasures. So you and I have to, have to think about the things that we ask God for. Why am I asking God for that? Is it simply so that I can selfishly consume something for my benefit? So my life is easier and happier and more comfortable? Or am I asking God for things that will bring Him praise and glory and will, will, will bring attention to the name of Jesus? So for example, if I have a problem, I immediately say, God... You've got two options. Take this problem away from me or take me away from this problem. 
And it never or, or doesn't always occur to us that maybe there's option three. Father, maybe this problem is purposeful that somehow you're going to be glorified, that you're going to be praised, that I'm going to grow, that others are going to see Jesus through this. But now Jesus is going to add something. The reason why we're going to do great things as the Christian church, because he went to the Father and we have access. Let's keep reading. He says in verse 14, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now listen, that's where the dividing line, right there. Because according to George Barna and their research, 48% of Christ people in America call themselves born-again Christians. Oh, man, we love Jesus. I got it on my bumper sticker. Honk if you love Jesus. There are so many people in America that think they're Christians, that call themselves Christians, that think they love Jesus, but they could care less about his commandments. Never even comes across their screensaver. They're sleeping around and having sex when they're not married. They're committing adultery. They're getting drunk. They're lying. They're stealing. They're cheating. They're selfish. And they're like, but man, I come to church and I go, oh, Jesus, I love you, man. I love you. And he goes, no, you don't. Because if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I want you to think about that. Because he's not saying, I command you to love me or I'm going to get you. First of all, there's only one reason that we should keep his commandments. Out of gratitude and love for him. And not because he says, if you don't love me, you're going to hell. You know why he wants you to love him? Because he first loved us. The Bible says we love him because he first loved us. So we don't come to church for Jesus to boss us around. We come to church to learn of, we just sang, at the cross, his love flowed down. But as the love of Jesus flows down, and I get it, wait, he hung there so that I'm saved? I could be forgiven? Oh, God, have mercy on my soul. Forgive me. Now I surrender. As a forgiven sinner, Lord Jesus, I love you. I want to do what you say. There's a big difference, because some of you are going, well, I don't always keep his commandments. Well, none of us keeps them perfectly. But how do you feel about that? I spoke to a young man a while ago. He was marrying an unbeliever. He says, I'm a Christian. I says, well, this girl's not a Christian. And the Bible says not to marry an unbeliever. He says, that don't matter to me. I said, what do you mean it doesn't matter to me? Are you a Christian? He said, yes. I said, so you're sinning against Jesus. You're marrying an unbeliever. He goes, it doesn't matter to me. She's the one for me. And I'm going, you are aware that Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Another guy says to me, hey, pastor, could you pray for my mom? She's living with this guy. You know, they're not married. She just needs some prayer. She loves Jesus. And I went, no, she doesn't. And he was like, what do you mean? Well, if she loves Jesus, why is she living with a man and she's not married? And he was a little put off. And the next day he called me back. He said, you know, I've been thinking about what you said. I guess in some ways my mom doesn't love Jesus. 
Now, here's the thing. I'm not saying to you, if you're, if you're not married, you're not saved. If you're, if you're living with someone, you're going to hell. But I'm saying this. If you love Jesus, and I love Jesus, we're going to do what he says. And I can tell you that if we were to measure Christians not by how many say they love Jesus, but how many obey Jesus, the numbers would drop off considerably. Okay? So please, if you are a believer, if you say, yes, I do believe that Jesus died and I am forgiven, for Jesus' sake, pray that we will do what he says. And if you're not doing what he says, then the Bible always calls us to repent. There is full and complete and free forgiveness for Christians. Jesus doesn't ask you to be saved over again, but we need to be surrendered to be obedient to Christ. And, and the Holy Spirit works in our hearts. And God, for some of you, is clearly saying to you that this is me talking to you. I'm not telling you that you're not a Christian. I'm telling you that I love you, and I want to bless you, and I want you to have a deep relationship with my son. But we have an issue here. You're not seeking to obey me. Now, you don't even have to do it in your strength. You're going, Pastor, you don't understand. I can't change. I do understand. I can't change either. But what I learned is Jesus can change me. And he'll never ask you to do anything that he won't enable you to do. And the Bible says his commandments are not burdensome. He's not asking us to bow down to Mecca seven times a day. He's asked us to live a pure life, to be in prayer, to be obedient, to love God and love our neighbors. And he gave us power and help through the Holy Spirit. So I want to be sensitive. I'm a struggler just like you are. But let's not make excuses for sin. Amen. Because this is what messes up our Christian life. This is what distorts the church. This is what makes our witness ineffective. When we say this and we live totally disobedient to Jesus. So today I want to invite you, if you're a believer, to recommit yourself to obeying Jesus. To surrendering to Jesus. He will forgive you. You can't go back and and undo your past, but from this day forward, an obedient church is a powerful church. A believing church is a powerful church. A holy church is a profoundly powerful church because people can't argue with changed lives. And so as we close this morning, it's not my intention for us to feel guilty, but to feel grateful and to cultivate our relationship with Christ. He loves us. He gave himself for us. We're freely forgiven. But now he's, he's calling us to prayer, to obedience. So I got an assignment for you. In a few hours, most of us are going to be watching the Super Bowl, right? And about halfway through that Super Bowl, they have what they call halftime. And as one of your pastors and an elder, one of the elders of the church, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you, I'm not going to commend you, but I'm going to ask you deeply to do this. When Lady Gaga gets ready to do her thing, we're going to turn that off. Okay, you're like, I wanted to see it. Well, then tape it and watch it later. We're going to turn off Lady Gaga as a church, and we're going to pray. And we're going to, some of you, I realize, you know, Uncle Larry's going to be there. He's an atheist. You know, he'll go ballistic. Some of you may not be able to do this. It might not work. But for most of us, we can say, hey, we're going to do something different. We're going to pray during halftime. Huh? Yeah, our pastor reminded us this morning that we can ask anything in Jesus' name and God will be glorified. You're like, well, well what, should, 
I don't have nothing to pray about. What? You don't have anything to pray about? But I'm going to give you some additional things to pray about. Number one, would you pray for, first of all, lost people? God saves sinners through prayer. I'm not making that up. The Bible says, pray for all men, for God desires all men to be saved. And I'll tell you why that's a great time to pray for lost people in America. You know why? Because a lot of Christians have a ministry during halftime where they're presenting the gospel. There are going to be thousands of Christians in America who have intentionally invited their friends. They already have a video ready. There are campus ministries all over the college campuses of ministries that are having people come to a Super Bowl party, but at halftime, they're going to go, hey, we want you to watch this. So literally, during that, however long, Lady Gaga's gagaing, we're going to be praying because the gospel is being presented, and it is through prayer that God brings people to himself. So, so remember your unsaved loved ones, your unsaved neighbors, your unsaved friends, and pray for these gospel presentations that are going on all over the world that people will come to Christ. Secondly, pray for our country. The Bible says pray for those in authority. You don't have to like Trump. You don't have to agree with Trump, but you do have to pray for Trump if you're a Christian because the decisions that he's making and that he makes in the next six months will affect America for a long time to come. Issues that have to do with things like abortion and religious freedom. Pray that God will work in his heart, not for our comfort, but so that the gospel will be profoundly spread in America. Third thing, and I'm done. Pray for revival of the churches in America. The church in America is on its deathbed. It's just about coded. It is so weak and anemic and worldly and similar to unbelievers that it's lost its power. It's the church of Laodicea who says, we're rich, we don't need nothing. And Jesus says, you want my diagnosis? You're poor, wretched, miserable, blind, and naked. So here's what you need to do, repent. And so pray that as churches, that we will, will be serious about our relationships with Christ. And you're like, I'll pray for those bad churches out there, pastor. You're right. No, pray for this church. Let's, we, can, we can't, we can pray for this church. You're like, we have flaws? Just a few, right? We've got so many marriages in trouble, so many people with addiction, so many people struggling with health and sin struggles and sorrows and depression and fears and finances, but God is doing a powerful work here. It's not about our cute little building in Yardley. It's about souls coming to Christ. And then when you go, oh, that seems kind of hard, then think about what John Samara told us last week. Go over to Syria and you'll beg to come back to how hard it is in America. So let's pray that God will work in our lives. Revive us, fill us, save sinners around us, Lord. Do something we cry out to you that our church might be used mightily, not so people can go, ooh, look at Riverstone, so that the Father may be glorified in this Son, Jesus. Do you feel, feel the connection here? Let's pray together. Father, in the name of our profoundly glorious Savior, Jesus, we worship. We have sat with you in the upper room, Lord, and we have heard you say that greater works than you have done, we will do. Because now you're seated as Lord of the church and your kingdom has begun to reign on this earth. And you have poured out the Spirit of God. 
And so I pray that you will forgive all of us for the areas that we have not been obeying you in thought, in deed, in motive, in giving, whatever it is, in laziness, in pride, in perversion, in sexual impurity. Revive our church, O Lord. Pour out a spirit of love and holiness and power upon us. And may our witness profoundly impact this world. Even this day, we ask that you would use us, Lord Jesus, that the Father may be glorified. And we ask these things because you are the Son who made these things possible. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a great day. I want to invite you to hurry up and get your kids. But if you need prayer, if there's something you want to pray about, I'll be here. There are a number of people who will be glad to pray with you. If you want to know how you can find Christ, come and talk to us. We'll point you to the Lord. Have a great day.